you would hope that businesses aren't thinking about this over the long run. They're not thinking about, should I uh, buy equipment now because I think it's going to be more expensive right. later. That shouldn't be influencing broader business strategy. But that is happening. It's happening every day now. That's right. So we're finding ourselves in a condition where you're looking at price growth well above historical averages, right. well above the Fed's target, and it's triggering some responses in the way that businesses are having to act. This is the Proco 360 podcast. I'm Dave Tabor hosting Proco 360 because I love Colorado and I love getting to know Colorado's entrepreneurs. Most of my guests have built very successful businesses with team members and collaborators who all love what Colorado has to offer. Today's episode is an exception to my regular format. My guest is Nick Sly. Denver branch executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. With all that's going on in the economy, some key economic issues are top of mind, even in the entrepreneurial community where macroeconomics are usually way farther down the list of things to focus on. But issues like inflation, workforce, supply chain are top of mind, and they're impacted by monetary policy. So I asked Nick Sly to join me today to explain how monetary policy works and what we should do about it in about 30 minutes. So you can do that, right, Nick? Absolutely. Dave, thanks for having me here. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad you could join us. Thanks to Stacey Martin of your office for coordinating. So let's dive right in. Let's start with quick in layperson terms. I mean, really, what does the Federal Reserve do? How does it relate to business? Yeah, I think starting at a very high level, the thing to remember is that the Federal Reserve is the nation's central bank. It's not a bank, a commercial bank that makes loans to businesses. It's not engaged in allocating credit in the way that other businesses are. But really what it is, is it works in the public interest to promote financial conditions that foster good growth, that foster uh, positive economic conditions that really f uh, support financial stability. So I think we often start with some folks not knowing that we're, we're really a public institution working in for the betterment of the, uh, of the country and our region. So now, yeah. how do we do that, I think, is, is the thing that most people talk about is monetary policy, right? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Moving interest rates uh, up and down to, to influence the, 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 stat, uh, the status of financial conditions and, and really those incentives for folks to buy homes, for businesses to borrow and invest, for uh, businesses to engage and expand into new markets. And so in that sense, there's a lot of influence there that's not necessarily directly tied to specific actions that we always see. Yeah. And we're going to dive into quite a bit of that. First, though, you asked me to let you give the standard disclaimer, you have to do it. So go right ahead. Absolutely. And as a public institution, <laughs> we always have to say this, that uh, all the views that I express here today are my own and don't necessarily represent those of the bank or the Federal Reserve System at large. But in that sense, uh, I do want to give you what I'm seeing and how I'm, uh, I'm interpreting things that are going on. Well, and like you, the views I express are all mine. So uh, you know, we'll see how this goes. Uh, you know, you and I are both focused on Colorado in this region. So what do you see as economic trends that may be different here in Colorado than for the country as a whole? Uh, first, let me take a step back to that just to highlight that I think that it really is an important question that, that we have folks from the Federal Reserve that are here in Denver trying to track Colorado economic conditions so that we can have this conversation. What's different in Colorado be part of the national conversation around monetary policy. And so really that is our charge is connecting with businesses to be able to be part of that conversation. And while certainly a number of the themes look to be similar, they are evolving differently here than, than you might uh, see in other parts of the country. For example, supply chain disruptions, supply chain entanglements. We're talking about this all over the country. But for example, we're seeing the costs of some managing global supply chains grow faster here in Colorado than you are seeing in other parts of the country. Is that because distribution here is just tougher? I think it's partly the distribution here, but we have a lot of high-tech manufacturing. We have an energy sector, and we have uh, a number, even the not renewable energy sector that uses some specific types of inputs. 
uh, our aerospace industry uses some very specific types of goods and resources that they can't just substitute or go somewhere else or try to circumvent any of the challenges. Yeah. They're really kind of, uh, when they get tangled, there's not a lot of options for them to get around. And that's so. worse in Colorado? Like, is it like titanium's harder to get? Or, I mean, what are you seeing? Any specific examples? Yeah, so some of it would be uh, the impacts of the chips. Some of it would be yeah. the, the piping for our oil and gas sector. Some of it would be the materials for our um, health and, 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 mm. and bio research yeah. that are here. So those are parts of the economy that we have a particular particularly large footprint in, and those are also parts of the economy where we're seeing a little bit uh, less ability to circumvent the disruptions. Huh. Well, and so many Colorado companies that we think of, and certainly our listeners uh, on Proco 360 are tech-related. The, the things you just said don't relate to tech, really, do they? Uh, I mean, if or you're talking they? micro, yeah, if you're talking uh, microchip, semiconductor wafers, some electronic oh, sure. equipments, those yeah, things yeah, yeah. are certainly on that list of very hard to get. And so, if those are more key inputs, and you have less substitutes for them, or you're really you're you're ordering these bespoke, customized products, yeah. uh, as inputs, it's harder to find a way to get around that. And it just happens to be that our our economy here in Colorado has more of that type of niche yeah, in, uh, yeah. needs. So you mentioned supply chain. Um, one of the other issues is, of course, talent. Mm -hmm. And do you pay attention to that relative to monetary policy as it relates to Colorado? Oh, absolutely. I think that's another narrative that's very much top of mind. So first of all, you know, the Fed and thinking about setting monetary policy is always with this eye towards price stability and maximum employment. So when you think about what is maximum employment, it's got to be relative to how many workers there are, how many workers are willing to go to work or able to, to supply their talent. And so you have to monitor that and really yeah. understand why it's regionally different. And we are having labor shortages. We're seeing broad reports of labor shortages, but they do look different than some other parts of the country. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you get input from Colorado on labor shortages, for example, monetary policy by the Federal Reserve, you may advise on what's going on regionally, but monetary policy is federal, it's national. So does do you does the federal government actually well not government, federal it, it, reserve it's right. actually factor much in about Colorado as it makes decisions that affect the whole country? Absolutely. So I, I report directly to, I mean, maybe to operationally how this works. So as I yeah. report directly to the Federal Reserve Bank president, of uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City president, who sits on the open market committee that makes the decisions about the path of interest rates. And so she has a, a vote uh, this year on that path. And part of the regular briefings are for us to her, here, here are conditions, how they look in the region. Here's what we're hearing from businesses. Here's what we're hearing from community leaders. She also, as if you look into the transcripts, yeah. reports on what are economic conditions in the area and the struggle. So I think, you know, there, there's the direct line. Yeah. So yes or no, easy answer for you. Mm -hmm. Have you seen what comes out of Colorado, feedback from Colorado, have an impact on the decision made at the Federal Reserve Bank federally? I've seen the, yes, and I, I think yes is the easy answer yeah. that's there. Um, something I, I very much appreciate about the way that the national policy, this one national yeah. policy called yeah. monetary policy is actually conducted, it's done with this regional focus. We have these regional offices that are charged with gathering this. Um, and you can actually see, if you ever went back and look at the transcripts, then that's there. That's cool. All right. So aside from labor shortage and supply chain issues, the third leg of what I'm going to call the stool of economic challenges is inflation. Yes. And that's what we're hearing all about now. But how should business owners and entrepreneurs think about inflation? For example, are there more nuanced considerations um, that an informed person might think of rather than just, hey, my costs are going up? Right. I would actually start, and this is not to be coy, but I would I would hope that over the long run, this whole conversation is going to be coy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you would hope that the you would hope that businesses aren't thinking about this over the long run. 
They're not thinking about, should I uh, buy equipment now because I think it's going to be more expensive right. later. That shouldn't be influencing broader business strategy. But that is happening. It's happening every day now. That's right. So we're finding ourselves in a condition where you're looking at price growth well above historical averages, right. well above the Fed's target, and it's triggering some responses in the way that businesses are having to act. And so I, mean, I think, first of all, over the longer run, we wouldn't want to be talking as much about inflation yeah. and its role in the economy and, and the growth, but we are there. We're not really used to it either. No, we haven't. It's been, we've had historically uh, declining. I mean, for the last, you know, 10 years, the conversation was, could we get up to 2% yeah, as the yeah. overall inflation rate? And now it's, can we get back to, you know, can we get back down there? So when you think about all the businesses that you're exposed to, which ones do you think are challenged most by inflation? And are there some businesses that benefit? Yeah, I I would carefully to say benefit because the, mm. the challenges would be, uh, you know, the, the best situation to be in is when they're not having to plan based on on price growth. Yeah. But there are some, there are certainly some businesses that we thought were challenged uh, more than others, and I would point to things, uh, businesses that used a lot of steel, that used a lot of uh, semiconductors or microchips and things. And it was really two reasons for that. One is those are prices went way up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly the, the cost of getting them. Yeah. But those are also the types of businesses that couldn't adjust their pricing to they their own customers. They got long-term contracts. Now they're hosed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're, they're locked in. And so it was it was six to nine months before they could even renegotiate. Yeah. And then they were getting, you know, covenants in there about how much they could actually renegotiate. So yeah. those types of businesses really caught on both ends. And this is where I go back to, you shouldn't be thinking about inflation if it's balanced. If it's balanced on the input and the output side and how much you can pass on to your customers, yeah. then really it's it's not, even when you think about your wage growth that you pay to your workers, yeah. That, that really it's balanced with what you'll be able to pass on to your customers. So, um, you know, we're certainly in a situation where steel, microchips, those those key yeah. inputs, businesses that use them and relied on them really took it a little bit harder. Is it fair to say, I'm going to ask you this question, let you think about it for a second, and then I'm going to come back. Is it fair to say that one of the Federal Reserve's objectives is that businesses don't have to be thinking about those kinds of things as we plan for our economy. But before you answer that question, I want to remind listeners, this is Proco 360, named Best Denver Podcast Three Years Running, and this year, well, actually 2021, named Best Colorado Business Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I have a special guest today, Nick Sly, Denver Branch Executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Thanks to sponsors, Kinsley Meetings via Technologies, and Digital Frontier Printing. Also, thanks to the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for its support for me and Proco 360. So getting back to that question, does the Federal Reserve really think about protecting businesses against having to make decisions based on inflation? Yeah, that, that's not explicitly the way it's written. This is a mandate from Congress, right? Price stability. It needs to mm. be, prices need to be stable over, over the long run. We've interpreted that. You hear about the 2% target. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and those are, I think, the metrics as the economists speak for it. But how does it actually land for real households? How does it actually land for real mm -hmm. businesses? It's that you don't often have to plan based on that, that you have steady and balanced mm -hmm. price increases um, of 2%. So yeah, I would think the that's target a, of price stability yeah. is a huh. good way to interpret it that way. That's a nice thing to hope for, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Now, what are you seeing more specifically regarding wage inflation? Because, you know, it seems like a, a lot of the business leaders I speak with hoped to avoid it kind of waited and hoped that they wouldn't have to get on that train. And now it seems like if you want to get workers, you just got to get on. Yeah. It, the, the labor demand is certainly there. The need for workers, the demand for, for hiring is certainly there. And one of the key ways you've had to do that is to pay higher wages, yeah. also to pay more benefits uh, and, and more substitutes. Does for, the Fed, does the Fed, is that part of your decision-making? 
uh, absolutely. about interest rates and things like that? Yeah, because it says a lot, not just about the challenges for businesses, but the ability of households to buy goods and services and to be able to uh, you know, produce and, and, and to drive this largely consumer-driven uh, U.S. economy that we have. Well, a question came to mind as you were talking, like, does the Fed think daily about things like, you know, the ability of, fa of a family to buy groceries? Or are you at a much higher level? Like, what should our interest re rate be to at a macroeconomic level? Or are you really thinking about, like, families? No, we're absolutely thinking. And we, I think, are thinking about the families, the communities that we serve. Their voice is part of that conversation. And their voice is reflecting what they're really having to buy, what they're really, their mm -hmm. overall uh, uh, um, well-being. And that's not uh, a statistics or a measure. It's when they go to the grocery store, yeah. they have the roof over their head, how secure are they feeling in that? It's hard to imagine a time when when Washington seems so dysfunctional. And I know you're not designed to be a political organization, but that people are really thought of in that way as you're looking at interest rate policy. Right. And if, if in fact, we're designed not to be a political organization, yeah. right? Being independent of that. And so the charge is, okay, you know, with that regional connection, make that part of the deliberation and bring those voices to the yeah. table. So I'm going to ask what seems to be a simple question, and it probably is a simple answer, but in 30 seconds or less, All here's right. your challenge, Nick Sly, can you explain how raising interest rates lowers inflation? Yeah, I can think of a, an example that probably a lot of us are very familiar with. So if you raise interest rates and those uh, kind of pass through all the way to, for, something, for example, something like mortgage rates, mm -hmm. then people can borrow a little bit less because the, yeah. the, the monthly payment is a little bit higher. And that means that they have less ability to sort of bid up housing prices. And all of a sudden you start to see the prices of things like shelter, like housing start to mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. This is true for businesses as well, as they might see with higher interest rates, it's not worth taking on as much risk in some of the entrepreneurial areas, some of the investments, and they're going to hold, and that's going to pull back demand for some other goods. So that- right. And pulling back demand lowers the prices or- Lowers the price growth. The, lowers the price growth. That's yep. a better way. That's the, the economist speaking. Thank mm -hmm. you. So the anticipation of rising interest rates seem to, seems to sort of, at least in the last few weeks, been a driver of a plunge in stocks and bonds, and I'm kind of mad at your boss right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, and yeah, you're, you are seeing, I think this is the thing that often gets missed is that people talk about interest rates and they think, well, the Fed doesn't have a broader influence because I don't borrow as a business from banks. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is, is that the, the movements that the Federal Reserve, the Open Market Committee takes influence broadly financial markets. And you're seeing it now in equities play out is that, it's, it's, by the way, yeah. it's not just a reaction to changes in policy. There's some realized risks that are coming, uh, 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 coming to the fore. And people, I think, repricing those. But you do see that broader influence that hits, and I was yeah. saying like for entrepreneurs in Colorado that often don't go to banks, they go to venture space. You, you yeah. still see the broader influence and transmission there. Well, if you're, if you're raising rates to slow inflation, I get it. We want to take off the pressure on wages, perhaps. We want to take off the pressure on the cost of groceries and things. But it also makes things harder for business to rebound after COVID, right? It makes it harder to borrow money, harder to buy new equipment and all the kinds of things that we want businesses to do, right? Am right. I missing something? No, and I, I would say this is how I've been looking at it, is the conversation around raising rates, it looks like it's pulling back, but actually what it's doing, it's just removing the unprecedented level of accommodation. So is the conversation that we're tapping the brakes? No, it's a combination. Are we taking our foot off the gas? Is, is the open market maybe taking its, its uh, foot off the gas a little bit? Does the economy still need that broader amount of financial support that it needed at the early parts of the pandemic? Yeah. And the conversation has generally been, uh, and the comments from the committee have been uh, not so much anymore. So this word accommodation, yeah. that's like economists speak for what? That's accommodation for uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, relatively easier financial conditions. So lower cost of borrowing, lower cost of credit. Yeah. Uh, that would be more accommodative. All right. So now at a, 
I have to ask this because at a really high level, and I know you can't comment directly as to the correctness of decision-making in Washington, um, you know, but neither I, like I, or none of the people I speak with who are, and I speak with a lot of pretty smart people can get our heads around what all this deficit's spending means, right? I mean, it seems as though our federal elected officials decided that debt and like massive debt doesn't really matter anymore, right? And that now I'm even seeing some economists say that, yeah, that's right. Maybe it doesn't matter anymore. From your perspective, like what are both sides of that argument? Right. I think there, this is the perennial conversation that, that happens. And so speaking for myself, I, this is something we, we take uh, that I, I focus on quite a bit. And the conversation to me is really around debt sustainability. And it's, are you able to take on a little bit more debt? Are you able to, are you able to support that debt, make the payments on it? If and you are, if you have a fast growing economy, if you have broad mm-hmm. participation, if you have a, a burgeoning and growing uh, uh, business community. And so that makes that debt much more sustainable. It's the same way of a little bit thinking about like in your early twenties, right? Yeah. As, as like, as your income's growing and as your economy's growing, you're able to take on and service more. So the conversation around is it sustainable? It's not a number. Like we hit 100% of GDP or certain numbers of, mm. of billions, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars that makes it less sustainable. It really is how are we using that as dollars and, and how much are they fostering overall economic growth? And so let's have a conversation about how balanced that is for for the, the economy as a whole. Well, I'd like to read your diary because I want to know what you really think of all this. Because I mean, at some point, it's kind of like, who was it uh, years ago when they talked about pornography? I don't know, you know, I, I don't know, can't define it, but I know it when I see it. It's kind of like, when is the federal debt like too much? Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of ways that's, I try not to think of it as a number. I really don't. It's it's really how much of a risk are you taking on, right? Is, is As mm. that debt grows bigger and bigger, the next recession could be the one that makes it less sustainable. It's thinking mm. about it as a probability. Yeah. How much risk are you taking on? And so I see the growth in debt being, it has been very risky. Now, go back 18 months or, you know, two years almost. Yeah that it was, we were, we were in a position of, you know, 20 some million people unemployed all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, our yeah. economy wasn't moving. So I'm not saying we didn't take on the additional risk, but the calculus is, and this is, this is the way that I'm reading this, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is, is was that against the, the certainty yeah. of that many people being unemployed, uh, yeah. the, the appropriate steps. So I'm gonna ask you a follow-up question in just a second. Listeners, this is Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. This episode is with Nick Sly, Denver branch executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to my newsletter, read my blog, link to sponsors, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. So before I move to the wrap-up, I do it. You know, it. I got to say this, and I don't know if you can comment. Uh, there may be a long pause, but you know what? I get what you're saying. It made sense to borrow trillions of dollars when COVID hit. And it would have made a ton of sense, except we'd already owed, what, $18 trillion then. It seems as though Washington has no regard for this notion of spending versus borrowing versus investing. Like, that all mashes together now. Yeah. I think this is going to be a, a good conversation for your listeners to have with their elected officials. <laughs> all right. Well danced around. All right. <laughs> Moving on, Nick. Um, you do a lot of research in your role. Yep. You know, what's an example of some pretty deep research that you've done that non-economists, particularly entrepreneurs, business people, and so that would find thought-provoking, maybe even sort of actionable? Yeah, I would go back to a couple of different things. Uh, one that I've been going back to recently has been some work we did on actually subsidized housing and the use of subsidized housing, the needs on those uh, types of programs 
during economic downturns. And so when you see labor markets really start to deteriorate or become less healthy, where does that need come from and, and how is that allocated? And what we found is, is that in local communities, there were these ties to if you had more women unemployed, you start to see more demand for uh, subsidized housing among women. And you start to see when you had Latino or black uh, unemployment rates start to rise, that you start to see more black and Latino folks applying for that type of housing. And so you see at the local area, you could actually uh, see that that allocation of, of hmm. subsidized housing mirroring uh, the the needs for our um, are the, mirroring the the labor market conditions. So what do we do area, with that? That I think it, it it highlights the need to have some local perspectives and local data that are driving some of those uh, those old decisions. And so um, I think what's directly actionable is really a sharing of information around the business community, the um, uh, public health community around what actually factors we see, even down to metro areas or down to counties. Uh, and I think you can see that show up in, in needs for housing. Uh, and that's been a particular need in the area lately. Hmm. Now, going all the way back up, uh, historically doing some research even on global tax policy, which, again, tax policy not being in the purview of the Fed, but we always look at changes in global tax rates and what that does to businesses hiring hmm. investment hmm. decisions that manifest here. And so we had some uh, uh, research that highlighted the, the trade-offs between small businesses and large businesses that really start to come up when you shift global tax policy around. And I think that's informative for a, a state like Colorado uh, that has a good multinational presence. Do companies that are exporting, importing, did, does monetary policy affect them differently? When you think about the Colorado companies you were just kind of had in your mind, do those who are exporting and importing have a different is monetary policy impacting them differently? Yeah, I would think it probably through different channels. I mean, depends on whether or not they're borrowing or not. Um, but for, let's talk about ahead of the pandemic, there was a number of years where actually one of the, uh, not drags, but lower contributors of overall inflation was actually the fact that imports were getting cheaper. They weren't growing. The dollar mm -hmm. was appreciating. And so for importers and exporters, that movement on currency and the movement on the value mm. of the dollar, which is really under the purview of the treasury, but is influenced by, you know, other, other policy actions yeah. um, or even uh, tariff rates when, when the administration undertook that a number of years yeah. ago. So you see that the importers and exporters here really are, are hit by monetary and fiscal policy differently than might be some smaller businesses. Okay. Give me an example though. What you just said did not, like, I didn't get it. Like, okay. so let's think of an example of somebody who might be importing you mentioned chips mm -hmm. uh, earlier. Uh, how would importing chips, how would monetary effect, policy imp affect somebody who's importing chips? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple different channels. One of them is the decision to import it and not build a fabrication plant here. Actually, well, but that's not monetary policy, is it? Oh, certainly. I think that, that the longer-term outlook for employment conditions can matter. The overall outlook for mm. interest rates of what it's going to cost to borrow can certainly drive that long-term strategic decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly. And then you're in a more... Short term, you can you can think that the the um, the value of the dollar, if it's not priced in the right way, it would actually could influence uh, uh, the cost of importing there. Well, backing up though, that was kind of interesting. The idea that, yeah, I mean, monetary policy, say low interest rates make it easier to buy equipment. Um, if it keeps wage inflation down, it makes it easier to hire people locally versus, you know, investing overseas, hiring overseas, and so forth. Right. And so there's a balance though that has to be said right? of, of, you know, seeking maximum sustainable employment. You're really going to let private industry, you know, I think mm -hmm. about this as letting private industry want to drive where they're going to invest and wh where they see wage conditions or the availability of workers. They want to make decisions based on those business fundamentals, but yeah. you want to make sure that credit conditions necessarily aren't getting in the way. Is there, do you ever find conflict between, um, and this wasn't on our outline, but I'm just 
Yeah. Like, you ever find conflict between the motivation of the Federal Reserve and the idea that, you know, businesses want to invest, grow, maximize profits, you know, have, you know, is there a conflict? Yeah, I think maybe a way to say this is that monetary policy is a, is a big, broad tool, uh, a blunt tool. Yeah. And so that inevitably, I think, creates some, some, some trade-offs. Um, some of those are things that do drive, you know, choices that businesses are going to, uh, is it going to make as they think about um, maximum employment or how much they yeah, want to yeah, hire yeah. versus they're going to invest in some technologies if labor is scarce and they, wanna, right, you know, right, and, right. They wanna, and they can afford to do so if, if there's lower interest rates. So I think you do see some of that. The more unfortunate conflicts, I think, are the fact that it's a big, broad, and blunt tool and the fact that it can uh, hit some households more directly, uh, particularly if you think that monetary policy causes uh, asset prices to go up. And so you have folks that have large amounts of savings in the stock market can benefit disproportionately from that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you, you do see some, some, some trade-offs that are there. And I think it's, uh, we have the responsibility to, to really try to understand and recognize those, uh, the, the different uh, transmissions. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing for me to consider because monetary policy, to your point, is a blunt instrument. And when you make decisions, there are always winners and losers, right? right. Yeah. I mean, that happens, right? Yeah. And I, and I maybe take this full circle to the, the beginning part of our conversation is, does, do you really see these conversations taking place at the table? And that's where I think for the open market committee and for the policymakers that even I report to, I think I've seen them take that seriously. Mm. And it's, that's where that comes in is the responsibility to see how does this work? How's, how is our policy stance affecting savers yeah. versus those that are actually paying down, spending down their retirement? How's it hitting a, a rural community versus a metro? You really have a responsibility to try to understand those. And so always thankful for the conversations that I have with business leaders and community leaders to be able yeah. to share that back up. Yeah. Cause this is an interesting time in our nation between as the, the chasm between the haves and has have nots grows. Mm -hmm. I mean, monetary policy flips the switch towards one or the other, right? That's right. I, I think it's, this is, there was a, a program the Kansas City uh, Fed runs, which is called the Jackson Hole Symposium. It's the bigger central banking conference that takes place in the yeah. summer. And the theme of that program this past year was the uneven effects of, of a monetary policy and the uneven recovery. Mm. So really trying to better understand uh, from not just a uh, an outreach standpoint, but from a policy and projection standpoint, yeah. you know, are we really well equipped to understand those those implications? So you want to pick winners and losers more thoughtfully? Absolutely, no, <laughs> no, and that's I think that's important. No, not not driving uh, allocation of credit and winners and losers. Yeah. And why I think the 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 mandate that we have is really important to stay focused on is maximum sustainable employment, price stability, and supporting overall financial stability. If those are the, your guiding posts. Those are the three. Say them again. It's uh, maximum sustainable employment, yeah. of course, uh, price stability, and always trying to do so in a way that fosters financial stability. Mm. Yeah. So maximum we call that dual the dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment. Cool. Now, what did you say? Maximum sustainable employment. Correct. Um, I'm still not getting to my last question because I'm I'm curious. Does maximum sustainable employment include gig workers? Uh, absolutely. It's it's how folks. How do you think about that? Yeah, yeah it's how folks want to actually participate and contribute in the economy. So, you know, the maximum part of that, it's not saying the maximum amount of employment in manufacturing, the maximum amount of employment in services. It's not. It's for folks that are making those decisions for themselves of how they want to participate in the labor force. Yeah. Part time, full time, which we're seeing as a, as a new margin yeah, yeah, where there's yeah, a lot yeah. of decisions being made. So you you're looking to see how they're making that decision. That kind of sets the bar for maximum. We have an aging population. That actually changes, that changes what, sure. what the maximum level of employment yeah, is. Yeah. And so you, that does change the target for what is mm -hmm. the overall maximum level of employment. And then it's, okay, what are the financial conditions that are going to help businesses and, and folks get there? Cool. All right. Now, 
Last question. Yeah. A couple of parts. Getting to the softer side of an economist. You know, I mean, when you think of something that you see as an economist that you think is like really interesting about these times, two questions. First, what do you think, like, wow, if we get this right or wrong, that's huge. Yeah. I, I to be honest, um, it's, to me, I'm spending a lot of time as an economist uh, as focusing on social cohesion and fo focusing on crime rates and focusing on our participation. We're in a situation where the number of things that are influencing our daily lives, the, the economic challenges that we have are many. The, uh, the actual conflicts that we have in any one policy that's out there, it's going to have you know, the ability to support folks through the pandemic, but also can promote some inflation on the back end that you have to deal with. And there's real trade-offs and balances. Is, are we able to have that conversation with one another? Hmm. Are we able to listen to the other side and have sort of a balanced perspective of that? Because to me, that's, that's I mean, I say it's just my daily life. This yeah. is what I want to see is, hey, these were hard times. They were hard times that we could get through together. And we can, these are hard times we can get through together by better understanding the challenges that were on the other side. Hmm. And so I do, as an economist even saying, uh, you know, try to look for, these, these participation in these, uh, these social groups. Yeah. So how does social, I, I noted the term social cohesion, right? Yeah. How does that connect with monetary policy? I think it, it, it says a bit about maybe taking a step back is the trust and confidence in the institution that's setting it is if you're starting to see a balanced conversation around the pitfalls and the merits of certain policy actions, and you see good discourse in the media or you see good discourse yeah. in, in the backyard. Frankly, the, the, the barbecue backyard yeah, conversation yeah, yeah. is really often one of the most influential. But if you see a more balanced conversation in that, you get better trust and confidence in the actions that you know, this institution is taking yeah. uh, on the public's behalf. Yeah, but I mean, business leaders that yeah. I talk to are, are generally kind-hearted people who believe in initiative. They believe that people who work should be able to achieve outcomes. That's not always, I mean, how does that belief fit into monetary policy? Well, I it, I think uh, an easy one to point to, um, which is but a hard one to, to tackle, is let's talk about inflation expectations. I said uh, earlier on that, you know what, we shouldn't probably, businesses probably shouldn't be thinking about inflation. It should be sort of back of mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's not a lot of trust and confidence in the fact that when the committee decides to move rates and starts to change that stance of policy and head off inflation, if there's no trust and confidence there, they're going to price and move things away from the policy intention. And mm. so that's where I say is the ability to come together and understand the intentions of those policy actions and un understand how it influences their own lives, yeah. their own business, I think really says a lot about how effective some of that monetary policy is going to be. So trusted monetary policy drives collaboration with it? I oh, I hope so. I mean, huh. my, my goal is to... Um, is to talk to businesses to, and more importantly, to listen to businesses about what are the challenges that they're feeling? What's hard about hiring right now? What's hard about finding the technologies that you need right now? And then the monetary policy conversations, at least as I, as I can report to them, are based on the real experiences that Coloradans and other folks are having. Cool. All right. Last question. Probably, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, what are you watching that fascinates you as an economist? Right now, uh, I think what I'm watching is the willingness and ability of workers to change jobs, uh, to move wow. and relocate, to, to take on new industries. Um, I think if you'd gone back historically, the wage gains that you got from switching industries, to put it in a very economist term, was, were actually quite low. Most of the time when people uh, lost a job, they found a job in a new industry. When they, when they lost a job and had to take a job in a different industry, usually it was a wage loss. Hmm. So that's very different than what we're seeing right now, record levels of what we call, you know, job turnover, people moving from one position to another. And I think 
making choices to reallocate themselves. Um, the optimistic side of me is thinking they're finding a place where they're going to be more productive. They're finding either a geography or an industry or a location or a type of business where they're going to be able to be more productive. And that is, uh, yeah, certainly optimistic, yeah. but it's, uh, I think it's, it's looking towards what can be a fundamental driver of growth. So I think that's one side of that for sure. That's cool. I think yeah. it's a good note to end on as well. Yeah. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and today I'm Proco 360. You've been listening to my conversation with Nick Sly, Denver branch executive for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Nick, thank you. know, I, I appreciate helping, you're helping us understand sort of how monetary policy works and, you know, how it's all governed. Thanks. Hey, always a pleasure to talk to you, Dave. Thanks. Listeners, glad you're here on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast. And if you haven't yet, it's a huge help if you submit a review in your app. Thanks again to show sponsors, Kinsley Meetings, Digital Frontier Printing, Via Technologies, and the Colorado Chamber of Commerce. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado.